Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. Ron, in the last episode, we began a new series where we are surveying the Gospel of John. We're doing it relatively quickly (laughs) in just four episodes. But in this episode, we're actually jumping ahead to the end, I think. That's right. We're going to survey what's usually called the passion narrative, the story of the path to Jesus' crucifixion. And I may be using the term passion narrative very broadly here. Some might want to restrict exactly what it covers, but each of the Gospels has a point where Jesus clearly seems to set his gaze on the end, on the cross. For this episode, we'll lump everything from that point to the end of each gospel into the category of passion narrative, and that means we'll go on to include the resurrection appearances as well. Okay, so we'll have more to say about other parts of the Gospel of John. Just because we're skipping to the end right now doesn't mean we're done with the Gospel. No, we're not done after this episode. We're recording this series at the end of 2023. Mm -hmm. If we'd waited until the end of the series to do this section, we'd have been covering the Passion Narrative at Christmas, and the timing (laughs) just didn't seem right. (laughs) Good call. For now, though, it's the path to the cross, as John records it. Mm -hmm. Let's go see what John said. Ron, I think you wanted to start like we did last time by quickly reviewing how the synoptic gospels tell the story. Yes, as usual, the Gospel of John is very distinct here, and it's good to know what those differences are. Well, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Passion narrative begins roughly when Jesus leaves Galilee and heads south to Jerusalem. In short order, we get the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which is the part where Jesus goes in and clears out the temple, and then inevitably the Last Supper and the crucifixion. A couple of things about that. The Gospel of John has Jesus shuffling back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee. We mentioned that last time. In fact, that's a key plot point early in the Gospel in John 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well. He was headed from Jerusalem to Galilee, and he has to go through Samaria. I could be mistaken, but I don't think there's any similar trip on record in the synoptics. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus teaches and ministers first in Galilee, then he goes to Jerusalem, is acknowledged in the triumphant entry, and as you mentioned, cleans out the temple. And then, presumably in reaction to cleaning out the temple, but probably much more than that, Jesus ends up at cross-purposes with the authorities and is executed. Right. Incidentally, John basically begins the gospel with Jesus clearing out the temple. So we get that story in John chapter 2, right after Jesus turns water into wine. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's just one more way John deliberately and obviously chooses to tell the story differently than the synoptics. In any case, the story leading to Jesus' death begins in chapter 19 of Matthew. That's out of 28 chapters total chapter 10 of Mark out of 16 chapters total, and roughly chapter 18 or 19 of Luke out of 24 chapters in all. Okay, so about a third of each gospel is dedicated to the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion, maybe a little less in Luke. That's right. The Gospel of John, on the other hand, appears to begin its march to the cross at the end of chapter 11, and that's out of 21 chapters, so close to half of the book falls into what we might call the Passion Narrative. The way the Synoptic Gospels read, the triumphal entry and cleaning out the temple are the final events that lead to Jesus' arrest and execution. It's safe to say, though, that the opposition to Jesus was building throughout the Gospel. That's right. And on that count, the Gospel of John is no different. The opposition was building throughout. However, the event that initiates the march to the cross, if I can call it that, is very different. In John, it's the resurrection of Lazarus 
Remember, cleaning out the temple came much early in John's gospel. With the resurrection of Lazarus, though, in chapter 11, that's when John gives details for plans among the Jewish leadership to have Jesus killed. All right. Well, that's where I think you wanted to pick up to survey John's account of these events. Let's go do that. And I'd like to emphasize snippets along that path where John offers us some commentary, often in Jesus' words, about what happens at the cross. The perspective is just one more very distinctive emphasis in the Gospel of John. Ron, you mentioned that the march to the cross begins in John chapter 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus. It's around verse 47 that we learn the chief priests and the Pharisees held a meeting to resolve what to do with Jesus. As John relates it, they're concerned that if everyone starts believing in Jesus, John's words there, believe in him, Mm -hmm. then the Romans will come and destroy both the temple and the nation. You know, we'll get to when the gospel was written in a subsequent episode, probably in the next episode, but it's very likely that for readers of the gospel of John, that's exactly what had happened. So the concern is not entirely unwarranted. Exactly. Well, as the meeting proceeds, it is the high priest Caiaphas that argues that Jesus must die. And he even goes so far as to say it was better for one man to die than the whole nation to be destroyed. Yeah, and John considers that prophecy. Right. John says this is no coincidence. (laughs) The high priest may not have known the full import of what he said, but he effectively predicted that Jesus would die for the nation and actually for all the dispersed children of God. You know, we may get the chance to come back to that, but child of God is John's term for someone who believes in Jesus. The term is not used that way uniformly throughout the New Testament. Paul's happy to use it more loosely in his sermon in Athens. For John, though, it clearly designates just those who are believers. All right. Well, this episode concludes with John telling us the Passover is at hand. Everyone, including the chief priests and Pharisees, are waiting to see if Jesus will make an appearance. And this is the third time John tells us about a Passover. He mentioned it once in chapter 2 and again in chapter 6. Presumably, this is the third Passover John mentions. And when he refers to the Passover from here to the end of the book, it's the same event now, the final Passover for Jesus. Well, as we work our way into chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, and Jesus connects that directly to his death. And then we get the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Right. And remember that in the synoptics, it's always a triumphal entry, cleaning out the temple, and then crucifixion. Here in John, we got the cleaning out the temple right from the start, like we said, but John keeps the triumphal entry here at the end. Well, immediately following the triumphal entry, Jesus is approached by some Greeks, They contact the disciples and tell them they want to see Jesus. Jesus' response is a little bit enigmatic. He seems to consider their visit very significant. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. This ominous phrase crops up a couple of times. Here, for instance, and again at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 13, you may recall there were a few times earlier in the gospel that Jesus said his hour had not come. Uh, Remember, he said it to Mary at the wedding when she prompted him to turn water into wine. Yeah, that's right. Well, now the hour has come when these Greeks, non-Jews, come to look for him. And now the words start to spill out, and it's all about the crucifixion. Jesus says a grain of wheat has to fall into the earth 
and die if it's going to bear fruit. Okay, that's verse 24. Right, but then perhaps most significant is the episode that starts in verse 27. Jesus seems to be troubled, and maybe that's the closest John comes to giving us a version of the events in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' musing, though, is greeted with a literal voice from heaven. The crowds hear it as thunder. Yeah, John is definitely rolling out the fireworks at this point. Definitely. And what we get may be one of the most significant things Jesus says during the gospel. Starting in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Referring, no doubt, to the crucifixion. That's exactly right. This is not the ascension or anything like that. John is explicit. This was said to indicate the kind of death Jesus was going to die. And there is a very deliberate play on words here. The Greek vocabulary that lies behind our translation, lifted up, carries all the same ambiguity. On one hand, this clearly fits the image of a crucified man being raised up on a cross. On the other hand, it fits equally well a king rising above the people. So the cross is where Jesus is lifted up. There's certainly a lot of language about glorification in the vicinity of these verses, too. Yes, this is probably the most important thing to know about John's version of the crucifixion. We've often heard it said that crucifixion was one of the most humiliating, excruciating ways Romans had to execute the populations they conquered. Roman citizens, by the way, wouldn't ever be crucified. All that's true, and that may come out a little more clearly in the synoptics. In the Gospel of John, though, the crucifixion is not a defeat, and it is not humiliation. It is exactly what Jesus came to do. It is the point that Jesus is exalted, glorified, lifted up. Pick your language. John, more than any other book, looks at the cross as ultimate victory, and it's something Jesus does all of his own accord. Chapter 13 opens with these words. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What follows is Jesus washing the feet of the disciples at the supper that evening, and with that comes Jesus' object lesson on servant leadership. Yes, and we have strong reason to suspect this is John's version of the Last Supper, because it's where he reveals that Judas will betray him. Everything Jesus says now conveys a sense of finality. Again, the hour had come. Jesus is about to depart this world, in John's words. Later in the chapter, Jesus will tell them, I am with you only a little longer. But at the very same time, he assures them that he has been glorified, whatever that means. This is not humiliation and not defeat. Whatever comes next, it is exactly what Jesus intends. And as we head into chapter 14, we're beginning a long section where Jesus does almost all the talking. That's right. I, I think of it as a monologue, although occasionally we get a minor interjection from one of the disciples. Really, though, Jesus is doing all the talking from chapter 14 all the way to the end of chapter 17, and this includes Jesus' long prayer for the disciples. Well, not long into that section, Philip finally begs Jesus to show them this father he's been talking about. And Jesus simply says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. This shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus had already said several chapters earlier, I and the father are one. 
Curiously, this is another place where we see John's ambivalent attitude toward the signs or miracles. Jesus basically tells Philip, if you can't believe what I'm telling you, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, then at least believe me because of the miracles. Mm. In other words, if nothing else works, then, oh, well, let the miracles convince you. (laughs) Well, what comes next must be one of your favorite sections, Ron, because it's so very Trinitarian. (laughs) Jesus now introduces the advocate or comforter, the paraclete. Jesus clarifies, of course, that he is talking about the Spirit. True that it is remarkably Trinitarian. The entire gospel was profoundly influential in how Christians later constructed their understanding of God. One interesting thing, though, notice that Jesus says the Father will give them another advocate. Uh, Right. That's chapter 14, verse 16. That suggests Jesus was the advocate or comforter up to this point. The role of the Holy Spirit is to continue the work Jesus is doing. We get some more information about the role the Spirit is going to play a little bit later in chapter 16, specifically in verses 12 to 14. Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit will guide you into all truth. Jesus basically tells them, look, I know you won't get what's going on right now. Even if I told you, you wouldn't get it. When this is all over, the Spirit will come and help you make sense of all this. Mm -hmm. And that's a profoundly interesting perspective on how we got the documents of the New Testament, really. I noticed, too, that we keep seeing references to glorification. One role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. Right. That's pure and consistent New Testament theology there. Everyone agrees that the Spirit bears witness to Jesus, or in certain cases, aids those who do. After the long monologue, we get something that looks a lot like Gethsemane because it involves the arrest of Jesus. John doesn't name it as Gethsemane, but it's likely the same olive grove just outside the city wall to the east of the Temple Mount. You're right. It looks like it might be Gethsemane, but we get none of the account of Jesus struggling in prayer while the disciples fall asleep. The closest we got to that was in chapter 13, where Jesus admits to being troubled. Here we get something completely different. Right. The voice of Jesus alone knocks the soldiers to the ground. Exactly. Here's John's point. Jesus goes to the cross on Jesus' terms. No one compels him. At every step along the way, Jesus does exactly what he intends, and everyone else is just playing the part assigned to them. Actually, Jesus makes that very explicit once he's talking to Pilate. He tells him directly, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. And this carries through to the very end. Jesus is in complete control, even on the cross. He puts his mother in the charge of the beloved disciple, as he's called. Traditionally, we assume that's John. At the very end, the gospel says that Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, and then bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice no one took it from him. As the gospel of John tells this story, Jesus remains in control right up to the very last. He has been lifted up, and in the terms of the gospel, This is a victory. Beginning with chapter 20, we get the story of the empty tomb and then numerous stories about Jesus' appearances after his death. In the last episode, though, Ron, you suggested the encounter with Thomas was 
particularly important. Right. That's verses 24 to 29 of chapter 20. Most everyone knows the story. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to his disciples. He insists he won't believe until he sees Jesus, until he sees the mark of the nails in his hands. When Jesus appears again, Thomas is, of course, convinced, but Jesus gently chides him. Thomas believed because he saw Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Okay, so that's what you're calling the gospel's ambivalent stance on the miracles or signs. The signs are there if that helps you believe, but maybe you shouldn't really need those. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be the case, but this is all the more complicated because of what comes immediately after it. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20 are the purpose of the book, the purpose of the gospel of John, and there is nothing more Joannine, nothing that is more pure essence of John than those two verses. Okay, let me read them. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. That's John. That's the purpose of the book he wrote. That's how John sees the world. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised Savior of Israel. We need to believe that. It's the only way to eternal life. John is telling us what happened so that we can believe that. Ron, it's hard not to think back to Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in chapter 3. So many of these themes seem to be echoed there. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's verse 13 of chapter 3. Notice that Jesus not only has a special relationship with the Father, but he ascended into heaven. In the context of John, That's the crucifixion. He's talking about the same thing in the next verse. Verse 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's that double meaning in the words lifted up again. It means simultaneously being crucified and being glorified. And of course, belief is what gets us eternal life, according to John. That, of course, brings us to verse 16. The one verse everyone will have memorized (laughs) if they memorize nothing else. (laughs) God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. That's what lies behind the entire story. When it comes to the crucifixion, though, John's point is that Jesus willingly does this. Nothing was by chance. The crucifixion was precisely what Jesus came to do, and he was lifted up just as he planned. Ron, in some ways, the Gospel of John is so very different from the other Gospels that it may cause people some distress. They might be tempted to ask, hang on, What really happened? (laughs) I think we'll get to talk more about that. We as modern audiences look for way more precision than ancient authors would provide or than ancient audiences would require. In any case, I like to think about it this way. Taken all together, the Gospels give us multiple different perspectives on what happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The synoptics may give us a slightly better sense of the pathos, the tragedy of Jesus' death, but even Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us strong hints that the crucifixion is precisely what Jesus came to do, and he knew this all along. John just takes that story to its logical conclusion. John says, look, 
let me tell you this story where we know from the start who we're dealing with and what he's planning to do. In Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe became human. He went willingly to his death and he gave himself freely. No one made him do it. No one could have made him do it. That's the person we're dealing with. All right. Well, that's where we'll have to wrap it up for now, but we'll still be in the Gospel of John in the next episode. We'll take a look at a scene that gives us a strong hint at the context in which the gospel was written. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening. 